that's the worst part about having your mouth wired shut is that you're watching other people eat. And that's, I wouldn't let my family eat in front of me. I would eat by myself and then go to my room so I didn't have to watch anyone eat. And I just wanted a cheeseburger. I just wanted some kind of food. In summer of 1997, Holly Dunn had just finished up her sophomore year at the University of Kentucky. Instead of heading home to Evansville, Indiana, she rented an apartment in Lexington with some friends and took summer classes. In June, her friend Annie turned 21, and although Holly was still underage, she and her friends wanted to get Annie a celebratory drink. And it was a laundromat and a bar, which I guess was a great idea at the time. Um, and it was called Sudsies. And we went in, and of course we got in, so that was a good sign. We went up and sat at the bar, and we ordered her a drink. And there were several gentlemen sitting at the bar, and they were all college students, you could, you could tell. And we just started talking to them. And Chris and I ended up, I think we were almost sitting by each other, or at least one away from each other. And we just started talking and hit it off. And it really was just a connection at the first time we met. Um, there, We noticed that we both had the same color of toenail polish on, which was silver, which is, you know, to, to meet a guy who has some toenail polish on is strange. But I thought, you know, this is, this is something we have in common. It's kind of fun. Uh, you know, and you do anything when you're a college kid or try anything. So um, it just, it meant that he was fun loving. And that's what I started, that's what I loved about him from the beginning was that he was a fun loving, nice guy. Holly invited Chris to the party they were throwing for Annie's birthday the next night. She was thrilled when he showed up. And that's when Chris and I really started talking, and we got to know each other a lot better. And we actually talked that whole night, and we ended up talking until early, early in the morning, and it didn't even matter. We just talked all night long. And, you know, to have that kind of connection where you can talk for that long, I think, is what endeared us together. We were, we were kindred souls. Chris went out of town towards the end of summer, but before he left... They made their relationship official. Yes, the next time I saw him was uh, a few, a couple of days before school started. I I remember he came to the sorority house where I was living at the time as soon as he got back, and he gave me that a uh, plastic ring that he had gotten for me in Maine, which was not you know the most fancy thing, but it was the sweetest gift to let me know that he was thinking about me while he was there. Holly was excited about her new relationship. But their last night together would be at a party they attended on August 28, 1997. This is I Survived, the podcast where we talk to women who have lived through the worst things imaginable and all the tragic, messy, and wonderful things that happen after survival. I'm Caitlin Van Mall. Party was rather dull, um, not a whole lot going on, so we decided to leave, just go take a walk to the railroad tracks that were about two blocks away. Um, and actually two of our other friends came with us. We were planning to go put quarters on the railroad tracks to flatten them. Our friends actually decided to go back to the party when after about an hour, no trains had come by. And so Chris and I stayed there for a little while and talked. And then we, when we got up to a leave, that's when a man approached us. And we were actually walking on the railroad tracks. and. The man came from behind an electrical box, like he had been hiding behind an electrical box. We never saw a gun. Um, He had some kind of ice pick or screwdriver or something sharp. That was his weapon. He just automatically, you know, was asking for money. When you're confronted with someone that is wanting something from you that you can comply and that you, especially if a weapon is involved, that you just comply and give them what they want and they'll leave you alone. Really the first thing that we said to him was, you know, we don't have money. And when he started going through the backpack, we said, you know, would you like us to go get money? You can have our credit card. You can have anything you want here. The man forced Holly and Chris to get on their knees and tied Chris's arms behind him. Chris did not fight back. You know, one thing, if I could describe uh, about Chris, is that I don't know if he had ever killed a fly. I don't think he had ever been in a fight in his life. And 
You know, with Chris feeling threatened and complying, that made me feel afraid. Really, you know, all the time he was controlling Chris, he wasn't really controlling me. I was just following along because I thought, you know, maybe I can stop, you know, you know, stop something from happening here. I just, there was no way I was going to try to run away or, you know, leave Chris there. He tied up Chris's arms first, and he even pulled Chris into uh, the grass beside the railroad tracks. And, you know, I saw that that was painful, and so I just sort of crawled along and, and did the same thing. We were on our knees at that point, and he had actually taken my belt and tied up my arms with my belt. You could tell that he had done this before. He knew how to control us. He knew he needed to tie us up. He knew that he needed to disable Chris. And so, you know, everything that he did, you could tell he had done it before. He had a bag with him that I saw that he kept going back to, and he actually went back to that bag, and I heard him ripping a shirt, and that's what he tied up our legs with was with a ripped shirt, and that he gagged us with with a ripped shirt. And when he gagged us, I actually stuck my tongue out so that the gag wouldn't work so I could continue talking to him. And I did. I, I, you know, was just asking him questions like why, why he was there. And he was telling crazy stories like he had just broken out of jail and he was waiting on his friend and his friend was going to be coming back with some food for him. And I mean, just not, nothing really made sense. We were sort of on a hill. So we were down at kind of at the bottom of the hill and, and, and the railroad tracks were up. Um, from where we were laying. So uh, he would go back up to a bag or whatever he had, you know, with him. And so anytime he'd go back up, I would try to, that's when I would try to untie myself. But he, he never left our side longer than just a few minutes. Uh, so anytime, you know, I was trying to strategize on what we were going to do, it was only a, f a few minutes time before he would come back. Well, I'm not really sure how much time passed before he came with a, a rock to hit Chris. And it was a 52-pound rock, so he was not carrying it, carrying it easily. But he hit Chris, you know, on his head. I mean, it was just like a dream. It was, you know, I, I didn't know really what was going to happen to me. I actually heard Chris gurgling um, after he had hit him, so I asked him to go and turn Chris's head to the side because I didn't want him to choke on his own blood. Um, and he actually went and did it. And he said, don't worry about him, he's gone. This episode of I Survived is supported by Madison Reed. As someone who colors their hair once every few months, I get really tired of the same old options. Flat, outdated, at-home color, or salon prices. That's why Madison Reed is such a revolution. It's salon quality at-home color starting at just $22. I Survived listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code ISURVIVED at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed takes at-home color to a new level, giving you gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. And there's a reason Madison Reed is different from anything else out there. It's crafted by master colorists who blend light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 beautiful multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. That's madison-reed.com. And as a special bonus, I Survived listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code ISURVIVED. That's code ISURVIVED. If you enjoyed listening to I Survived and want even more true crime delivered right to your inbox, subscribe to A&E's Real Crime Newsletter. Be the first to receive interviews with your favorite A&E crime show personalities, get unique insights into some of the most notorious crime stories in history, and dive deeper into the behavior and personalities of infamous criminals. To subscribe to A&E's Real Crime Newsletter, go to aetv.com slash real dash crime to sign up. While you're there, check out A&E's Real Crime blog for everything true crime. Want to know what death row prisoners request as their final meals? Or what happens to a house where a gruesome murder took place? It's all on the Real Crime blog. Catch up today at aetv.com slash real dash crime. I remember a lot more of talking to him after he had hit Chris because I think that I went into a survival mode after he had hit Chris. 
at that time, like I asked him what his name was and he asked me what my name was. I was just trying to make him know that I was a person. I was, you know, trying to get to it. If he had an emotional side, I was trying to get to it. Holly was trying to befriend her attacker, to humanize herself. I had talked to him the entire time. I had, you know, asked him to do things for me and he was doing things for me. And I just believed that I had befriended him and that he wouldn't hurt me because he had told me that. And I don't know why I thought that a person who had, you know, done these horrible things was telling the truth. The attacker had told Holly and Chris that there was another person out there in the darkness. So when he began to sexually assault her, she thought it had to be the other man. And I tried to fight him. I basically was, you know, screaming and, and trying to hit him. And um, that's he stabbed me in my neck and said, look how easily I could kill you. I felt like I was floating above my body. I did not feel anything. He had just stabbed me in my neck and I didn't feel that. I, you know, I wasn't feeling pain. I wasn't feeling anything. He took off my, my pants, but that, that was all. He didn't completely undress me. Even after he raped me, I asked him to put my pants back on because I thought, you know, if I'm gonna, if he's gonna kill me, I don't wanna be found laying here naked. So he even put my pants back on after he attacked me. So, you know, he was, at that point, he was doing things, and I really thought he was gonna let me go. And I was saying, you know, I really want to see my family again. I really want to see my friends. And, you know, I, I'll, I, I won't turn you in. I'll, uh, I'll just, you know, leave, leave, and I won't tell anybody that you did this. So, you know, my mind was trying to do anything to just make him stop. And I was, I was begging for my life. I was telling him that I wanted to see my friends and family again, that I, you know, did not want to die. You know, the moment when before he hit me, I really thought that I had convinced him that he wasn't going to hurt me, that he was going to leave me there. He hit me in my face, and I think what I did was I turned over to, to stop him from hitting me in the face, and so he hit me about five times in the back of my head. I thought I remembered him covering me up with, you know, like branches and, and grass and things, and then I, I thought I, I even remember saying, like, thank you, because I knew that I was still alive, and that I, I was saying thank you for leaving me here alive. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think he knew that I was still alive. I think he definitely tried to kill me. Really, the next memory that I have was appearing in someone's front yard. You know, I was covered in blood, and I didn't knock, I didn't ring a doorbell, I just walked into this person's house. I remember saying, you know, I. I've been hurt, my, my friend is still out at the railroad tracks, we need help, and I'm, I, I don't really remember exactly, but I said to call 911 and, you know, that I definitely was going into shock. It was now almost 3 a.m., and luckily, another University of Kentucky student who lived in the house was awake watching TV. He quickly called 911 for a blood-soaked Holly. He talked to her to keep her awake until police and EMTs arrived. She was insistent that they go help Chris, not knowing that he was already dead. I think the first person I said that to was the EMT that was riding on the ambulance with me um, because I wanted to make sure that they knew where Chris was. And so I was, I don't know if I was saying so much, you know, about me. I was just saying we were attacked. My friend's still out there. I, you know, you, you need to tell somebody to go find him. Go, you know, I was trying to make sure that everybody knew that Chris was still out there. And then I told him that I wanted to go get a cheeseburger. And that's the kind of humor that I have that, you know, it's a defense mechanism, but it's like how I protect myself. And so I asked him to stop by McDonald's on the way to the hospital to go get a cheeseburger, which actually we should have done because it's the only thing I craved the entire time um, that I, my mouth was wired shut. At the hospital? doctors were able to fully assess her injuries. So I had a broken jaw, a broken eye socket, and a stab wound in my neck. And then I had numerous lash lacerations in the back of my head. So they had to staple the back of my head shut, and I begged them not to shave my head. I don't know why that was so important. And actually, now, as, as, an older, as, as I'm older, I think that might have been interesting to have my head shaved just to see what it looks like. But, you know, I begged them not to shave my head, so they stapled my head shut on top of my hair, um, and they 
then I had the broken jaw, broken jaw, broken eye socket, and the stab wound they didn't do anything to because it needed to just drain. And it was it was a puncture wound more than a stab wound. It was, you know, a small puncture wound. Um, and then my broken eye socket, there's nothing they can do for a broken eye socket. I actually don't know if I was told that I, I – if I, if I told anyone that I was sexually assaulted. I – I'm sure I did because they knew that they needed to do a rape kit. Um, but, you know, I, I was in and out of consciousness once I got to the hospital. So I don't know what I said and what I didn't at that after that point. Um, so I remember the ambulance ride, but I do not remember getting to the hospital. I remember waking up in the emergency room. Holly wasn't in the hospital long before a detective came to ask her some questions. Detective Sorrell was, I met him in the hospital and I actually met him before my parents even got to the hospital. Uh, He was one of the first people I met in the emergency room that, you know, weren't nurses and doctors. So I was very much still, I'm not even sure, I don't think my rape kit had been completed yet before when I met him. I think that I met him And I just, I remember him and another guy coming into the room and they were in plain clothes. They weren't police officer clothes. Um, They came into the room and, you know, he came up to my, to the bed and, you know, I was still, I was in pain. Um, I wasn't comfortable. I just remember being kind of antsy and him coming up to my bed and being like, I'm Detective Craig Sorrell and being very professional saying, you know, hello, it's nice to meet you. I'm Detective Craig Sorrell. I'll be handling your case. And as soon as he put his hand out to shake my hand, I threw up on him. And I really think that, <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly, but it broke the ice between us. And I think it, and I mean, I, I think I just threw up on his hand. I don't think it was like in his face. And it helped that he thought nothing of it and that he was, you know, the same guy, um, very professional, uh, try, there to help me. And I think I knew that. And so it, it, it just, it, it brought us together in a way that, you know, I remembered him and he definitely remembered me. Shortly after her very memorable meeting with Detective Sorrell, her family arrived. So my parents were about three hours away, um, but they had, they flew. You know, the 911 call was made at like 2.46 a.m., As soon as they called them, they literally went to the airport and came to Lexington. My dad's a private pilot, so they flew to Lexington to be with me. It's only like a 45-minute flight for them. Um, I believe they got there around 5 o'clock in the morning. So they got there fast and got to the hospital fast. And, you know, they are the first people I see that I saw that I knew. They, you know, I saw them and just felt at ease because they were there with me. I really didn't have to talk to them. Um, They had been updated by, I guess, hospital staff, maybe even the the police officers. I'm not sure who all they talked to when, you know, before they actually saw me. When they saw me, they just held me. They didn't say a whole lot. I didn't say a whole lot. I think it was just a, you know, relationship where you just need to, be together and and hold each other and there were no words at that time spoken it didn't matter I was alive and I think that they were happy that I was alive Holly's older sister also came in from Nashville and was her biggest supporter in the hospital I'd say during my stay at the hospital it was my sister I mean she stayed with me she got there the next day after the attack my dad went and got her in Nashville and once she got there she never left my side She's the one who helped me wash my hair, helped me get the hair out of my staples. She's the one who helped me get up when I needed to or adjust in my bed when I needed to, fluffed my pillow when I needed it fluffed. She was the person that was there for me all the time. Holly was in the hospital for five days and would have to have her jaw wired shut. She also had to miss Chris's funeral. Her injuries were just too much to travel to his hometown of Canton, Ohio. When she returned home to heal, there was one phone call she absolutely did not want to make. I actually did not talk to Chris's family. I had a lot of survivor's guilt. And so I thought that Chris's family would 
not would not be happy with me. I didn't I didn't think they'd like me. Um, and so I was afraid to talk to them. Um, and I wrote, I remember writing them a letter. That was the first thing I did after I didn't want to talk to them, but I wrote them a letter and I remember talking to his sister. So I talked to her and, you know, I couldn't really talk. I had my mouth wired shut. So every time I talked, I'm I'm talking like this. I remember her saying that she knew about me, that Chris had talked about me, which I remember thinking just like, wow, like I can't believe he mentioned me to anyone, you know? And I think that I I just, in it, I enjoyed the conversation. She was concerned and wanted to make sure I was okay. And I just wanted her to let her know that I was and let her know that I was there for her and that whatever she needed, that if I could do anything, that I was there. And I remember just leaving the phone call saying, I'll talk to you soon kind of thing. It was, it was not anything out of the ordinary. I think it made me happy, actually. Like, it made me feel like I had meant something to him. So I think she um, helped to, I don't know, validate his feelings for me because, you know, him and I never really got the chance to, to do that. Holly had to spend a month at home healing. She felt very isolated after experiencing the freedom of college. But her sorority sister stepped up and came to visit her every weekend. I mean, they would come in groups of four, groups of eight, two cars, three cars. Um, They were coming every single weekend as soon as school got out and would stay all weekend and then leave to go back to school. Um, But they were there for me. That just meant so much to me. And I think that even has meant so much to me as my life has gone on. I've made sure that I'm there for my friends in a way that, you know, maybe others. I just appreciate friendship, I think, a little more than others do and think more of it because how much friends meant to me when I really needed them. And so I think it today even makes my friendships more important and just more special in my life because I know what friends can do for you. But her day-to-day needs were largely met by her mother. My dad would still go to work, but my mom was home with me every day, kind of I mean, it was nice having her, you know, fulfill my every need. She was, you know, amazing. It was like I was a kid again and she was taking care of me. But I was afraid of getting a little too used to that. You know, like I I was afraid of losing what I had in college. And I think that's why I went back to school one month after the attack, because I was so ready to get back to the normalcy of school and my independence because I knew my parents wanted to lock me in a room and not let me out again. I knew that they were, it was going to be tough for them to let me go. Um, So I had to kind of rip the Band-Aid off and say, I'm going and I'll be home sometimes. I'll see you later. So Holly went back to school and at her family's request, she agreed to start therapy. My sister especially thought I should be going to therapy. So I made the appointment and I at the low at the school counselor office and you know, I didn't expect much much of it, which I think my mentality going into it probably wasn't very good. And so I get to the appointment and the appointment was fine. I just remember thinking like you're reading from a book kind of answers that she gave. And so I didn't really have a good connection with her. And it might have been better with somebody else. Had I known at that time, you know, there's more than one counselor. You can talk to more people. Um, but I didn't know that. I So I um, finished the appointment and made an made a, an appointment for the next time, um, which I think was a week or two weeks later, and, and did what I was supposed to do because everybody was saying this is what you're supposed to do. And so I did it. And then, you know, that day came that I'm supposed to go back to the to the therapist. And it was a decision of either going to the Lambda Chi watermelon bust with all my sorority sisters or going to my therapy appointment. So I chose to go to watermelon bust and, you know, have a great time with watermelon and then never went back to therapy. That was it. Um I even think they called me and said, you know, you missed your appointment. And I'm like, I'm not coming back. Like, you know, I know it's my choice and I'm not doing it. Um, You know, I had very, I did unconventional healing. And that's, I think, 
what I needed at that time. And it's, you know, I think it's different for everybody. And I needed to be with my friends. I needed to have fun. That's what my healing was at that point. Um, I did talk to my friends, but I, you know, it was on small, small occasions. I would just mention what I was going through at that moment. And then we would be off to the next event that we were going to. I mean, it, it, or to the next class. I mean, I was definitely still in school. I was, um, going to graduate. I was determined I was going to graduate. So, you know, that's, I was focusing on school and having fun with my friends. Holly also got a part-time job to help fill the hours. I got a job at an outdoor store because I only had one class and I was bored. And of course, us cashiers, who were all girls, thought that the guys in the ski department were really cute. And um, I, Jacob worked in the ski department. And so I would hang around the ski department and talk to him. And although that's the question is whether he was coming up to the cashier stand to talk to me or if I was going to the ski department more to talk to him. So one of the first times we hung out, he met my dad um, and got on the plane and flew to Nashville with me. And we stayed with my sister and then f- drove back to Lexington. So, you know, our, even our that was one of our first dates that I think brought us together very much. Um, and from that point on, we were kind of inseparable. We hung out a lot. I mean, we started dating Um, and we were, we would, I mean, very quickly we were boyfriend, girlfriend. So, um, and I mean, we got very, very close. Um, I think we both wanted a relation, a real relationship and had, you know, just, we had decided that that's what we, we were exclusive with each other and that's what we were going to do. What helped Holly date again so quickly was that she never associated her rape with intimacy. No, I didn't feel guilty. I I really felt like that's what Chris would want me to do. I mean, truly, again, like separating the relationship and intimacy and that horrible thing that happened, I think helped me to be able to go into that relationship again quickly. I wanted to know that I could be in another relationship. I mean, I wanted to know that I could trust somebody and have those feelings and feel um, those just any kind of feelings toward another person. Um, And so I think... I felt it didn't necessarily, I didn't feel guilty. I just felt, um, I think I felt cautious at the beginning because I was afraid. I was afraid, especially of what he knew about my story and then what I was going to have to tell him. Um, my friend had actually talked to him that worked at the store, had actually told him about me and he actually knew about me before I started working at the store. Um, so he knew a lot and, um, I, so I didn't have to tell him a whole lot. I mean, I think for me, because it was a stranger and because it was this horrible thing that happened, I could easily separate it. Um, and so, and disassociate it from what a regular relationship was. This is not to say that she just partied her problems away and got a new boyfriend and was just totally fine. Um, I think my emotional healing occurred last, kind of. I really know that I had to emotionally heal around the one-year anniversary of the attack. Um, I started going through kind of some things that I didn't couldn't really explain. I started to, you know, do poorly in school. I was not getting good grades. I couldn't get out of bed. I was feeling very depressed. And so I didn't know what was happening. And it just made sense to me that there was something else. You know, I was this, and I was seen as this strong person getting through this horrible thing, and she's doing so great. But on the inside, I really wasn't doing that great. And I'm thinking, I don't want to disappoint anybody. Like, I got to figure out what's going on before anybody notices, you know? And so I, I literally went to find some help. So I remember searching on the internet for the rape crisis center, the local rape crisis center. And they said, you should join our support group that's getting ready to start. And I joined a support group. Holly knew she needed to focus on the support group and her healing. And that meant she couldn't focus on Jacob. Um, And I really think that I completely blindsided him when I broke up with him to join the support group. Um, I remember meeting him for yogurt, like at TCBY. 
Um, and then I told him that um, I was breaking up with him. And um, I mean, I, he was absolutely flabbergasted and blindsided. I mean, he had absolutely no idea. And I don't think he really understood why I was doing it. I don't think he could understand. I mean, it was... I don't need, I didn't understand it. I mean, I just knew that I needed to be alone and figure this out. I mean, it was emotional to have to grieve and, and, and grieve Chris dying, but it was very emotional to have to deal with being raped. Um, and so that's what the support group at the Rape Crisis Center did for me. The help she got at the support group was a game changer. They taught me that I used humor as a defense mechanism. You know, they told me, stop making jokes. Like, stop trying to make us stop crying. They were like, you're supposed to cry. You know what I needed to know? I needed to know that I didn't have to put on this face with them, that they accepted me for what I was, and I could cry, and I could yell, and I could scream, and I could hit things. I could do whatever I needed to to heal. And I think that's, you know, I just needed to know that that was okay. I needed them to tell me that I was normal, that I was what I was doing was normal, um, how I was feeling was normal. You know, I still do that today. I still feel like... I don't, I have less bad days than I, you know, than I ever did before, but I let myself have those bad days. I let myself feel what I need to be feeling. Like I, it's, if I'm feeling bad on a day, I let myself feel bad. It's not, you don't have to fix it and you don't have to change it. It's just a bad day and we're allowed to have them. It just, we don't want to have very many, you know, you can, you don't want to have a lot of bad days, but you're allowed to have one. You're allowed to cry. You're allowed to scream. You're allowed to be happy. You're allowed, you know, all the feelings, we're allowed to have them. But after the six-week program, she was still thinking about Jacob. When I first joined the support group, even though we were broken up, he would send me flowers and like be all sweet. Um, And... I think at that time I'm going, just leave me alone. Like I got, I got to heal here. Leave me alone, you know. And um, once I went through the six week program of the um, support group, I kind of realized, like, oh man, I made a really big mistake breaking up with him. Like I should call him and talk to him. And so I try to call him and he hangs up on me. Like at that point, he had gotten gotten through the being sweet, broken up part and he had gotten, gotten to the anger, broken up part. Um, and so he was very angry with me and he wouldn't talk to me. Um, I mean, if I would see him out, he would turn the other way. If I called him, he hung up on me. Um, there was, it was absolutely cutting me off. And I thought, well, I ruined that one. You know, like that was a big mistake and, um, that's done. And I totally ruined it. I think even at that point I did maybe get a hold of him him once. I found out where he was living and like I went to his house, um, and we talked, but he was so angry that, I mean, he didn't want anything to do with me. So she accepted it and tried to move on. She went on with school and was looking forward to her last year of college. When she was home that summer, an unexpected opportunity presented itself. A woman from her church asked her to speak at a retreat for teens. Holly had actually attended the retreat before, but wasn't so sure about speaking publicly about the attack, especially at a faith retreat when her own feelings about her faith were conflicted. I definitely went through anger with God. I mean, especially right after the attack. I felt anger toward God, toward my faith. Um, I felt like, why would God let this happen? I mean, I don't think I really voiced it with anybody. I mean, it was inside me. I actually, you know, lived with that silently. Um, And I, I mean, I still was going to church with my family, but I wasn't, you know, feeling... A closeness at all with God. Um, and I really think that's, you know, what faith is. It's, it's a closeness. And so um, I'd say that I was, I was losing my faith. I mean, truly. Um, and, you know, then I got asked to do a talk. And, you know, I had attended a religious retreat called Chrysalis when I was a, a, a senior in high school. And, you know, they always ask people to come back and give talks. So the leader of the um, chrysalis came to me and said, you know, I, we want you to give a talk um, and we want it to be on faith. <laughs> and I thought you are crazy. Like you are asking a girl who is 
completely angry at God who is losing her faith to give a talk on faith. And I don't know why, but I was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. You know, like, you're gonna be sorry you asked me, but I'll do it. So I'm going through the whole retreat with everybody, just going through the motions is what I was doing. And we get to the point in the the top where, in the, in the, retreat where I'm supposed to talk and you know they they go they right before it all the leaders gather around you and pray over you before you give your talk and I cannot explain to you the feeling that I had when they all prayed over me for me to give my talk I mean it was um I mean a feeling of like strength like power over me um And, you know, it was pulling me and, um, it was pulling me into the room and, um, it was truly, I mean, I felt like it was God pulling me. Um, and so, you know, I'd planned the talk I was going to give. I was actually just reading an article that somebody had written about me because I couldn't talk about myself myself, you know? And so I, I read my, the story and I, at the end of it, my, the guy that wrote the story had said, Um, And, you know, this happened to a friend of mine. I went to school with her and I even had a crush on her all of fifth grade or something, you know. And I was like, and so in the talk even, I just said, and I can't, I had no idea this guy had a crush on me all of fifth grade. And so then they realize that it's me that I'm talking about and everybody's crying. I'm crying. Um, You know, it was so powerful. And then the words that came out of my mouth were not, were not mine. I mean, I don't, I did not plan to say them. I mean, then I started talking about how I was so angry at God and I was so lost. And, um, I mean, truly it was, I mean, God sent me the words to say. And I mean, truly that's when I, that's what I was feeling. Like I was feeling like God was just carrying me to this moment and that, that's the reason I survived and that's the reason why I lived was because he let me because he held me um and so you know that's when my faith got renewed obviously um that's when I knew that God was with me um and you know it's I think it's it's amazing I know that there is something beyond me I know that there is a higher power and I know that it's the reason I'm here today and that's you know I think that I do that in my daily life that I am um I know that I'm alive because of him and I know that now my work that I do is because it's it's because of him so (laughs) sorry you can so I mean it's amazing what gets me crying like I mean it's at every point in my life it's been a different time a different thing that gets me crying and so yeah I mean I knew something would get me there but I didn't know what it was going to be so there you go the speech at chrysalis led to others that was the first time I spoke publicly about it and then the next time was when I spoke at the University of Kentucky to 700 women going through recruitment at the University of Kentucky. So, you know, it was 2 years after the attack I started actually thinking like I could talk about this and it can make a difference. So when I when I first started speaking, I it was very hard for me. I mean, I was emotionally drained after I would do it. I would cry through the entire talk and then I would have to take a nap because I was so drained from the emotional side of it um but you know that I I think it was healing for me it was so amazing the response that I would get the people that would come up to me and say thank you so much for telling your story I had this happen and I've never talked about it or you know I I, the people it's the people that were amazing and so I had all these people coming up to me telling me how awesome it was to hear me and then I was healing from telling the story because the more times I talked about it the more the less control it had over me and the more I had control over it and after I think I realized it after the first time I spoke I wanted to do it again I couldn't wait to do it again up to this point, there had been little progress in finding Chris's murderer and Holly's rapist. In the year since the attack, they still had no suspect. I knew that he didn't have my name. My name had never been released, and so, and I had told him a fake name. 
So I knew he didn't have my name, and I knew that he didn't know where I lived. He didn't take anything from me, so he didn't have an address. He didn't know anything about me. And so I kind of lived scared, but not, you know, so afraid that I couldn't live my life. Holly even lived alone her senior year. I had, you know, done some emotional healing, and so I decided that I needed to gain back my independence and to feel not be afraid alone. So how else to do that but jump in the fire and get an apartment by myself? Um, so and you know I I because I have always loved being alone. I've always loved my independence, being a strong independent woman who, you know, I I've, I, I say I I slept with a butcher knife beside my bed. I looked over my shoulder. I locked my door at all times. I took self-defense classes. I, you know, I definitely was an aware person living by myself. And I, I had friends at my house almost all the time. I had a lot of friends spending the night with me. I had a lot of friends sleeping on the couch. And so I, I wasn't alone a lot. Um, I was alone several times though. And I think that it did help me to feel safe again alone. Holly and Detective Sorrell remained in contact, having lunch every once in a while. One day, in May of 1999, two years after the attack, he showed up at her apartment out of the blue. Podcast One presents, this is a collect call from Sing Sing. My name is John J. Lennon. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. I'm also a contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. Imagine trying to stay focused and talk about issues of substance with geeks slamming, prisoners screaming, and PAs blaring in the background. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. It, he had never come to my apartment before, and I was like, something's up. Like, this is weird. And so I answered the door, and he's like, we have a suspect, and, um, you know, I, we know it's him. Like, you know, it was it, – it, I, I mean, I just don't even remember exactly what he said because it was so kind of like, oh, wow. Um, but it was also then scary because we didn't know where he was. They had matched the DNA of Holly's attacker to two crime scenes – the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton outside of Houston, Texas, and the murders of Pastor Norman and Karen Cernick in Weimar, Texas. Every crime that um, he committed and then every crime he was accused or, you know, accused of and or um, charged with um, started to stack up. And so it, it, it was after he was a suspect that we started to realize that we had a serial killer on our hands. Law enforcement in Houston Kentucky, the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, the Texas Rangers. They all came together for a joint task force to catch Angel Resendez, the railroad killer. Now that they had a suspect and knew the horrific nature of his crimes, the TV show America's Most Wanted decided to cover the case. As part of the episode, Holly was interviewed and Chris's parents came to Lexington to see where their son had died. His mom and I realized that we had on the same shirt, but in a different color, and that we had on um, a ring that came from Vail, Colorado. It was a golden bear ring that, you know, is, you can only get it in Vail, Colorado, and we both had it on. And so it was, you know, just strange noticing how much his mother and I were alike, and that it made us, I think, feel happier. Like we were, it made us feel good that we were alike and could find commonalities between us. And so I just remember giving them great big hugs and answering any questions that they had for me because they wanted to know some things. They wanted to know what Chris's last words were and, you know, how he was before he passed. And, and I could give them that. And I felt like a, I felt good to be able to tell them because, you know, there was a peace that came over Chris and I. I. I felt a peace, and I believe that he did too. And his last words were, everything's going to be okay. And, I mean, those are great last words to say. Like, it is, everything can be okay for all of us, even though he's not in the world anymore. It can be okay for all of us. Um, and I think that that's how I take that meaning of what he said. I think I take it as, yes, and I take it as he wants us to all be okay. That's his wish for all of us. And so I wish that for Chris's family. I wish that for my family. And I wish that for all the victims' families. Um, I want everybody to be okay and to live their lives as best they can. 
Um, and that's, you know, I'm glad that I was able to tell his parents that. Holly's episode of America's Most Wanted aired in mid-June with the news that Resendez had killed 26-year-old Noemi Dominguez and 73-year-old Josephine Convicca that month. They lived 70 miles apart, but the same weapon was used in both murders. During the episode's airing, a tip was called in that led police to Resendez's sister, who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They made contact with her on June 14th. On June 15th, 80-year-old George Morber and his daughter, 51-year-old Carolyn Frederick, were found murdered in George's home in Gorham, Illinois. Resendez was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list on June 21st. Three weeks later, on July 13, 1999, Resendez surrendered himself with the help of his sister and other family members. The murders had taken place all over the country, and rather than drag out trial after trial in all jurisdictions, it was decided Resendez would be prosecuted in Harris County, Texas, for the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton. This meant he would not be prosecuted for Chris's murder or Holly's rape. Um, And that was the only one that he had a trial for. He was charged with several other crimes at that point. And so with tech, what Texas can do, because it, what, it did occur in Texas, and what Texas can do is during the penalty phase of the trial, they can bring in all the cases that they're charged with. And so that's when I testified was during the penalty phase, and that's when several families of victims testified during that point too. Dr. Benton's case met the requirements for capital murder because it happened during the commission of another felony, in this case, robbery. If convicted... The minimum sentence was life, with parole after 40 years. The maximum sentence was death. Holly was the only survivor of his attacks. She was the only one that could speak to the actual experience when so many others were silenced. It came into mind how many victims there were and how many families were left and, you know, just how big this had gotten. I don't think I really let it emotionally take a toll on me until after I had testified at the trial. Um, And then I think I did experience at survivor's guilt. And I think, I mean, I don't necessarily experience it today, but I do... Um, like I don't, I don't want them to experience any more sadness, any more, um, hardship in their life. And so I have made it a point with myself to let, um, survivor, let the survivors, the families of the victims, um, contact me. So if they want to have contact with me, if, if they want to talk to me, I, I'm happy to talk to them, but I will not seek them out and I won't, you know, shove anything in their face to try to have them contact me because I don't, I want them to heal and I want them to be, live the best life they can, even though they're missing that person that's not in their life because of my attacker. Um, and, but I, I, and I, I want them to know that I, um, every time I speak, I put up pictures of all of Resendez's victims. I keep their memory alive. I don't want them ever to be forgotten. I just love to watch like Dr. Claudia Benton had um, twins. She had two kids, two daughters that I, I'm now friends with them on social media and I can watch them, um, you know, getting married and growing up and having these lives that are, you know, they're living their lives. And um, yeah, they're doing it without their mom, but they're still living these lives and they're inspiration for me. And so if I can be anything for them, I want to be because they're, you know, they're inspiration for me. Resendez pled not guilty by reason of insanity. His cellmate from a Florida prison stint he did in 1990 testified the pair spent quite a bit of time in the library researching the insanity plea and how it could be used. A victim's advocate also testified that Resendez was selling letters, autographs, and even nail clippings from jail. After 10 hours, the jury found Angel Resendez guilty of capital murder and sentenced him to death. I mean, I was very happy that he was given the death penalty. Um, I felt like that was justice in my case. I was especially glad that the, um, I guess the death penalty, um, him sitting in death on the on death row wasn't that long. I mean, it was about six years after he was put on death row that he was executed and 
you know, truly, I was never, I never had any feelings toward the death penalty for or against it. But what I felt after he was executed, and I was not there, I did not go to the execution, I stayed at home with my family. But what I felt after was a sense of peace, a sense that even, I mean, because always I thought he could break out of jail and come and get me or get out on some kind of appeal, something that happened wrong, and he could come out and get me. Um, because I testified against him, because I was the only one that he left alive. Like there was, and it was not maybe rational. It was somewhat irrational to feel these feelings, but I felt them. And so when he was executed, those feelings went away. And I no longer felt that he could ever hurt anyone again. And I felt like it was justice. I felt like it was what needed to happen to somebody who created so much evil. Resendis was executed June 27, 2006. In his last words, he asked for forgiveness from God. As Holly says in her book, Soul Survivor, if I ponder the possibility that his repentance and remorse were sincere, then, based on the tenets of my Christian faith, I have to also ponder the possibility that I may encounter him in heaven one day redeemed and restored. Here's how I wrap my head around it, because I believe that God's going to take care of me. And I believe that, you know, even though if we go to the same heaven, we got to think about how big heaven might be. And so it's, it's like, you know, somebody is 8,000 miles away. And I feel like that's how it's going to be in heaven. I feel like, I, yeah, if we did, if we do end up going to the same place, um, then God, I'll never see him. And God will keep him away from me and or God will put it in my heart and whatever or my soul, whatever is up in heaven with him, um, that I won't have the feelings of whatever happened on earth and that I, I won't know evil. I won't know bad. I won't know and I won't have any of those feelings. In the six years between Resendis's guilty verdict and his execution, Holly focused on living her life. Shortly after the trial, her ex-boyfriend Jacob reached back out to her. He just said, you know, I don't know why I'm calling you. Usually when I write people off, I write them off and I'm done. But there's something about you. And I don't know what it is, but, you know, I'm calling you. And I don't even want a relationship, but I'm just calling you to let you know I'm throwing out an olive leaf, basically, is what he was saying. Um, and so I worked for the next five years to get him to see me, to get him to call me to get, I mean, we dated off and on, but he didn't trust me. And so I was trying to build trust back with him. And um, we definitely did some hurting of each other. And it was a long five years, but he ended up moving to Evansville with me and proposed, um, I guess, about two months after we had moved to Evansville. And he, um, we were married nine months after he proposed, so he is now my husband. And so obviously that something there was that we were supposed to get married and that we did. And so now we've been married for 13 years and have two beautiful kids. And, you know, you go through all the feelings in the relationship. And, you know, I think we realize that now that, yeah, we'll go through all those feelings. And even when they're bad, we still want to be together. And so, um, you know, I think it it's now... I, I, I can see my life with him forever because we can get through anything. And that's what's amazing. And I think that has endeared our relationship and we will be together. He is my, my everything. He's my life. Holly never stopped speaking about her attack. And this led to an amazing opportunity in her own community. The idea for Holly's house actually came from a police detective in Evansville, Indiana. He was a sexual violence detective, and he had attended a class where he learned um, how to talk to kids. And so it was called, at that time, Finding Words, and it, it was it was an pro educational program that you'd go to to learn how to talk to kids that had been abused. And he found out at that that there were child advocacy centers across the United States, that they were popping up in cities across the United States. And so he came back to Evansville and he said, I want to get one started here. And he knew he couldn't do it alone. So he called me up and he said, 
Um, and I think he had talked to the, uh, many other people before he called me. But, you know, in the in my in my mind, it was just he got this idea and he calls me. Um, and so he called me and he said, you know, I want to start an advocacy center in Evansville, a child advocacy center. And I want to we want to name it after you and we want you to be involved. And so I'm like, um, OK, well, uh, I don't think I can just be have it named after me. I'm going to have to be a little bit more involved than that. Um, and so I at that moment, I was like, well, I Googled what an advocacy center was real quick because I had no idea. So before Holly's house opened, victims would, child and adult victims, would go to the Evansville Police Department to be interviewed. So they'd go in the same rooms that were meant for perpetrators. They were small closets. They were the size of closets. They were dark. They were dingy. They were ugly. They were uh, meant to make perpetrators feel uncomfortable. And so they were, victims were interviewed in the same rooms. So what we wanted to create at Holly's house was a totally different environment so that victims would be interviewed in a comfortable, safe room with beautiful colors on the walls, with comfortable chairs, um, and that they would feel safe and comfortable and at home when they were talking about this terrible thing that had happened to them. Um, It's a forensic interview. It's a one interview process. It's um, an interview that's done one time. Um, it's recorded and I mean, it, it is um, just a very, makes the victim feel as comfortable as they can talking about that horrible thing that happened. And it also, we also have resources available to them that they can, so they can use after they report the crime. So um, even if victims come and don't want to report, we have resources available to them that can help them with legal advocacy, can help them with health, mental health, uh, can help them with support groups, with whatever they might need um, in their healing process. It was many tears and much hard work, but it was all worth it. We opened 100% debt-free And we opened our doors um, to assist child and adult victims of intimate crimes. Um, And it was amazing. I mean, it it is such an amazing resource in our community now. Um, It's been around now for 10 years, um, going on 11. Um, And that is amazing to me that, you know, we have now become a staple in our community and that we are changing lives and preventing violence and living the mission of Holly's house and and our community is is feeling the effects. Holly is now the mother of two boys and she's easing them into understanding what happened to her. I definitely my I actually gave my son a book the other day to take to one of his teachers cuz she had asked me for it and I put it in his backpack and he he but he know I mean they know that there's a book that has my face on it. Um but he took the book to her and so now his friends ask me when I come they say you are on a book. And they, you know, that's all they think is like, it, they don't know what the book is. They just say, you're on a book. Oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, that's what I want them to know right now. Like they can learn about the story as they, as they do. I mean, that's, my son's going to find out things as time goes on and he's going to ask me questions and that's what I want him to do. I want him to ask me the questions and I will give him the developmentally appropriate answers that I can. I'm not planning like there's going to be a sit down moment when I tell them, you know, it's not going to be a one moment. It's going to be a lifetime. And you know, that's, I think how you should do a lot of things with kids. Like it shouldn't be, it's one sit down time. It is a lifetime of talking about whatever those issues are that you want to talk to them about. Holly still has a relationship with Chris's parents. As the person who is with her son in his last moments, she's developed a lifelong bond with them. I'm glad that I was able to tell his parents that. And I'm glad that I'm able to be there for them if they if I can help them at all in their healing then I I will be and I want to I love them they were at my wedding they were at the opening of Holly's house they're like my third family I love them um and you know not everybody has three families like I mean how blessed am I to now have three families like that they are I consider them part of my family and had this experience not happened with Chris I probably would have never met them 
Um, you know, that's pe people ask me if I would still be with Chris today if if that this if he had lived. And you know, I'm like, one thing I know for sure is I'd still want to be his friend because uh, he was such a fun guy. He was such an amazing, fun-loving, just great guy, and he was everybody's friend. And so I, that's one thing I know is that I would want to be his friend. I don't know if we'd be together, but I'd want to be his friend. And so you know, but I I very much appreciate that my relationship now with his family and to have that I think is healing for both of us. Holly's book, Soul Survivor, the inspiring true story of coming face to face with the infamous railroad killer is available on Amazon. You can learn more about Holly's house at hollyshouse.org. To talk to someone confidentially at the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, call 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also live chat with someone at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. I'm Caitlin Van Mall, host and senior producer. Our producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Ted Butler. Our editor and sound designer is Steve Delamater. I Survived was originally produced by NHNZ. To hear more I Survived, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.